Okay, well, we're going to continue today in our, uh, our Advent series, the songs and scriptures of Christ's coming. And if you remember last week, we looked at the carol, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And uh, we saw sort of the, the past, present, and future blessings of the Advent or the coming of Christ. Well, this week, again, like last week, we'll turn to the carol that we just sang together, O Come All Ye Faithful. And uh, this one happens to be one of my favorites. And uh, you might say, well, you did pick these, so it's no surprise that it's one of your favorites. And that's kind of true. Uh, it's not my most favorite, though. Uh, that one we'll get to in a couple weeks. And uh, just uh, by way of sort of announcement, Matt will be taking a turn uh, next week, and uh, the care will be God rest you, married gentlemen. So, Lord willing, we'll hear from Matt on that next week. Uh, anyways, O Come All Ye Faithful is one of the most well-loved Christmas carols that there is. It's sung uh, multiple times in every church, every Christmas. It's sung every time people go caroling. It's on the radio. Uh, um, it's it's actually interesting because the origin of it is not that old. It's three or 400 years old, but it's, it's kind of ambiguous as for who actually wrote the original words. Uh, we have a, a translation of it in our hymnal and what we sang today because it was actually originally written in Latin. And uh, you've probably heard that uh, that baritone voice of Bing Crosby uh, singing it in Latin on the radio. Adeste fidelis. And uh, I'll stop there because I'm not Bing Crosby. And uh, and also my Latin is about as good as my jokes are, so I will not continue. Um, but it has become a blessed and loved Christmas carol. And it makes wonderful application of the events uh, surrounding Christ's birth and also uh, the incarnation itself. As we'll see, it alludes to the wise men's journey uh, to Bethlehem to see the newborn king. It alludes to the angels' announcements to the shepherds, giving glory to God in the highest. It alludes to the Apostle John's sort of version of the Christmas story, where he gives uh, the story behind the story. And we'll see that in John chapter 1. Uh, but the, the refrain of the song, the chorus of it, that we just sang three times, uh, that's really the key application. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. That's the real message of that Christmas carol. And it's going to be the theme of this sermon today, adoring the Lord. What does that mean? How do we do that? Why is that so important? We think of Christ at Christmas, and often we think of him as that newborn baby lying in a manger. And, and we have no trouble as humans sort of fawning over the idea of a, of a little baby. But adoring the Lord Jesus is more than just admiring a newborn baby, isn't it? And I think we'll see through the scriptures today that adoring the Lord Jesus is living as if the Lord is everything. Before we jump in this morning, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, I pray that you would guide us now as we look to your truth. Thank you for uh, thank you for these songs that we can sing, Lord, that that highlight and bring together and, and, and put to words in a, a singable way these scriptural truths uh, so that we can remember them and ponder them and dwell on them. And, and uh, this week, Lord, would this, this faithful carol, O Come All You Faithful, not be just a tradition, but would the words behind it, which are your words that we'll look at today, would those ring through? Would, would your word prosper today? 
Would you work through the scriptures? Would you teach us? Uh, would you give us the Holy Spirit to illumine the, the truths and to open our minds? Uh, would we put aside doubt? Would we put aside the obstacles that so often are in the way of, of, of fully believing what you've said to us? And would you work here in this place this morning, Lord? And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Well, the carol opens up, uh, O come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. And uh, the end of that verse is, uh, O come and behold him, born the king of angels. And uh, now I love the theme of the kingship of Christ. As we've been studying Matthew together, uh, we've seen that that's Matthew's primary theme. It's Christ's kingdom. It's his rulership, which is both now and future, as we've been seeing. And that language in the Christmas story brings us back to Matthew's gospel. I guess I can't avoid it, even though we're taking a break from Matthew. We're going to go there again today. At least to start, you can turn to Matthew chapter number two, um, where we find the story of the coming of the Magi to find this newborn king of the Jews. Matthew 2, verse 1 and 2 say, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, or magi, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now we did a little bit more in-depth study on this passage last year, and not a ton is known about these magi, as, as we've noted. Uh, we speculate, based on this passage and other tidbits in history, that, that they were sort of royal astrologers, maybe kings in their own right, but uh, probably men of high degree, maybe from Babylon or that region. And we don't have much way of knowing about these specific men and, and their religious beliefs, but except for the fact that they have come, apparently having access to the, the Hebrew prophecies and the scriptures, and they took interest in this prophecy of a, a star, and they found their way to this newborn king. Now, maybe if they were from Babylon, maybe the influence uh, from Daniel's day was left behind there, and there was some interest in the Hebrew people and their religion. Again, we can only speculate, but... But we do know, because of what we read in the scriptures, that they were aware of this, this story, this promise. And it's interesting because you, as you examine the prophecy about this star, it's hard for even us to understand and make sense of exactly what it's talking about. But somehow these magi knew there was going to be a new king born to the Hebrews and the star that they saw, of course, was the Lord's miraculous star, and it led them right to him. They brought their group and their entourage and their fanfare to Jerusalem, and they came with the intention of, of bowing before this king and worshiping him. And as they came into Jerusalem, they started asking, where is he who's been born? Where is the new king of the Jews? And, of course, this stirred Herod into an uproar because he was the king, and he wasn't aware of any new one. Where is this newborn king? And as we know, Herod's ploy and his plot was to get them to, to find this baby and tell him so that he could destroy him. But, of course, Jesus was preserved. 
and the Magi accomplished their mission as well. We skip down to verse number nine in Matthew 2. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose, I'm not sure what's going on behind me right now. (laughs) The star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, beyond the mere excitement of of finding their intended destination, after, after finding what they had been looking for, of course, that would have been exciting in itself. What possibly could have caused these esteemed men to fall down before a little baby in a humble place like this and to worship him? Well, consider all that went into it. The prophecy of scripture, the miraculous star, the leading to this house. It's clear that the Lord had done a work in history, but I also think he must have done a work in their hearts and their minds as well. And prompted by the Lord's work at seeing the true king, they are lying in that humble place. They worshiped. The word worship, of course, simply means to bow down. And uh, we use it, of course, to to think of of making obeisance to, to God. But Matthew really doubles that idea because he says, not only did they worship, which means to bow down, he said, they fell down and worshiped. You could say they fell down and bowed down. Now that's confusing. We wouldn't talk like that. What does that mean? I think it means that there's something that came over them and they dropped to their knees. And then there's something that came from them. And I think that is how it is with our worship of the Lord. The spirit of God within us cries out and and words of a song or a prayer or a hallelujah come from us. Something happens to us. That is, God has done a work in us and from us, true worship then comes. Remember the story of the woman at the well? And uh, Jesus told that woman that there would come a day when not neither there or in Jerusalem people would worship, but that God desires worshipers in spirit and in truth. Well, I think in a very unique way on this day, these wise men, though perhaps pagan in their background, were overcome with God's presence and they worshiped truly. Has God done something in you so profound and wonderful that you cannot help but worship? Has God come in? Has he interrupted your heart? Has he taken place in a way that only he can? Has he come over you in a sense that now something must come from you in the form of worship back to this king? Does the Holy Spirit in you resound with the fact that Jesus is the king? that he deserves our our bowing, our humbling, our worship? Do we fall down and bow down before him? Oh, come, let us adore him. Well, we move ahead then quickly and uh, think of the second verse of the carol, which brings in the wonderful pronouncement to the shepherds. 
Now, I've heard entire sermons on whether or not the angels actually sang or whether they just speak. And after listening to those sermons, I've said, well, that was a waste of my time. Uh, Does the Bible say the angels sang? No, it doesn't. Does it matter how they got this message across? I don't think so. What matters is not what they or how they said it or sang it. What matters is what they said and what they proclaimed. And we'll see that in Luke chapter number two, if you want to turn there. And of course, Luke two being that famous Christmas passage. As the second verse of uh, the carol we sung uh, ends like this. Glory to God, all glory in the highest. That comes directly out of the scriptural text. And uh, we find ourselves again near Bethlehem and a small town with a famous background. Of course, Bethlehem, named here in Luke as the city of David by the angels. And although Jerusalem would become the place where the kings of Israel would reside and reign, and even David would, Bethlehem was unique and then it was the place not only where David came from, but it was the place where he was anointed king. And now, as we come to Luke 2, we find the story of another king from David's own line, a better king and a better David here in Bethlehem. And we're going to pick up Luke 2, verse number 8. It says, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is well pleased. We can't go into much detail and uh, about all the surroundings of these shepherds, about who shepherds were, what they were like. We can suffice to say that the shepherds were certainly an an awkward choice, humanly speaking, to which the the first Noel would come, so to speak. The shepherds were maligned, even though they were Israelites. They were kind of outsiders. For one reason or another, they they as a whole lot were known as being untrustworthy. Yet at the same time, their task was incredibly important. They kept the sheep. They raised the sheep. Sheep, many of which would become a central part of the Jewish worship. The lamb, with the imagery going all the way back to the Passover in Exodus. And of course, that lamb's imagery fulfilled in the true spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But the angel comes to these humble shepherds there at night, and it was awe-inspiring, to say the least. They were terrified, beyond terrified, Yet the message that came from that wonderful messenger was, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. I love this message because the angel doesn't just say, Fear not, because I said so. Now, seeing a heavenly being, you might say that's a good enough reason. He's told me to do something, I'm going to listen. 
But the message that he brings is not just fear not because I said so. No, he says, fear not, for behold, I bring you the gospel of great joy. Now, you might not read it exactly like that as you look down at the text, but that word that the angel uses, the good news of great joy, that's the same word that we get the word gospel from. Fear not. This gospel I'm giving you, I'm pronouncing this to you, is a gospel of great joy, which would be for all the people. And what was that good news? What was that message? What was that gospel? Well, it was unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That was the good news of joy. That was the heralded message of the angel. Fear not, because of this good news of great joy, Christ is born today, and he's the Savior. And after giving the shepherds instructions on how to find this child, their purpose and message continued, and the one was joined by thousands, millions, and there was a whole host proclaiming together, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among them, those with whom he is pleased. They were giving a twofold message, glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth. That is the proclamation after the news of the Savior. The Savior is born, glory to God. That is the great news of salvation. Salvation has come through Jesus. Glory to God. Salvation is of the Lord. It comes from God alone. And every ounce of our being should cry out and live out glory to God because of the salvation which he has wrought. The plan, the person, the the work of salvation, it's, it's all wrought in God. God in flesh, the person of Jesus Christ, our Savior. You ask, what is the good news? What is the gospel? Well, the angels put it simply here, and we can share in its simplicity. Christ is the gospel. He is the good news. The focus and the the weight of the gospel is is not that it's a mere statement. It's not that it's a a good thought. It's not that it's it's well-intended or it gives us the proper to-do list. No, the weight and the glory of the goodness of the gospel is the person of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Glory to God in the highest. The Savior is born. And the second half of the message, peace on earth to those with whom he is pleased. Now, some manuscripts, and and we even sing it this way, would say, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And uh, the idea is really preserved in either wording. The fact is that peace on earth follows from what God has done in sending the Savior, bringing peace to men in general in one sense, but bringing true peace to those who find Christ to be their Redeemer a particular piece, a a specific piece that is grounded not just in an idea, again, but in the person of Jesus. 
That peace that, that we read is surpassing understanding. That peace is made possible by the work that surpasses understanding, the coming of God himself into the world. Jesus, the Son of God, taking on flesh. That's the wonder, the amazement. And to that, we must agree with the angels, glory to God in the highest. We'll go then thirdly to the Gospel of John, chapter number one. And uh, the end of the third verse in the carol uh, ends with these words, word of the Father now in flesh appearing. I love the message of verse 3 because it, it brings the story of the wise men worshiping that little king and the, the shepherds both trembling and rejoicing at the announcement of that gospel of great joy together. And it puts them into application in our lives. And it does so by, by telling us just who that little baby is. And we, we get this notion in this, the words of the song come right out of John 1, where we read in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John's gospel doesn't start with a, a, a narrative about Christ's birth, uh, like Luke, and it doesn't start with a, a genealogy of Christ's lineage, like Matthew. Rather, John's gospel begins and sets the stage by telling this amazing background story. He announces how grand and mysterious and curious of an event has taken place in the incarnation. Uh, these first 14 verses have, uh, have been called the story behind the Christmas story because they lay, just, they lay out just how profound the work of God is in Christ taking on flesh. Well, verse 1, as we read, John starts with the, this, this idea of, of the word, and the, it's, it's the word logos. And uh, it means more than just printed letters on a page or a spoken word. Um, to the Greeks, the idea of the logos had been around for quite a while by the time John writes this, probably 500 years or so. And uh, to them, it was a, a principle it was, it was the idea of, of an ordering reality, sort of a, a centerpiece of the universe. And uh, all of this is, is, of course, abstract. But there was an idea that there was something, whether it was a force or a concept or, or a principle, something that was at the center of everything that sort of held all things together. And in philosophy, that was about as specific as it got. And uh, while it's good and true to think that there is something in the center of everything, it doesn't do us much good to think of it only as an idea. Well, John, brilliantly using this term, in essence is saying, yes, there is something that orders and unifies all existence. There is something that truly is at the heart of all things. And it's more than just a concept. It's, it's a being. It's a person. He says, the word was with God, and the word was God. That is, God is the thing, not the thing. God is the one who orders all, who holds all together, who is at the center of all things. Verse 1 in John 1 is the summary statement that this logos, this word was with God, and he was God. 
but the truth is, is further expanded in verse number 14, where John says, and the word, that's the same term there, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Yes, there is a, a unifying and ordering factor that's central to all existence, and he has a name. It is Jesus, the only Son from the Father. This is John's Christmas message, that Jesus, that one born and laid in a manger, the one who grew up to be the most amazing and singularly important person to ever walk the earth. He is none other than the second person of the Godhead. The guiding and unifying life source is not an idea or a fountain, but it's a person, a person. And that person came to this earth, taking on flesh, displaying his glory, and he was full of grace and truth. John would go on to talk about Moses. Moses, he gave the law. He gave truth. Moses, Moses uh, wrote down what God said. But with Jesus came a display of grace and truth. Moses, you could say, spoke for God. But Jesus speaks as God. Moses got a, a, a little glimpse of God's glory, but Jesus Christ reveals the Father's glory in a way that only the Son can do. The person of Christ, the one that we adore, is the center and the source of all existence. He's the one who gives life generally, but he's also the one who gives true life, eternal life. He's the one who gives living water, the one who gives new birth. Verse 12 and 13 say, To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Do you see that? God stepped into the world that he created and he acted. And in his action, he calls people to himself, and those who believed are born again. Children of God, born not as the will of the flesh, but because of God's work. So we say, oh, come, let us adore him. Because without him, we have no second birth. We have no life. We have no light. We cannot produce the transformation, the new life that mankind needs. God did it, and he did it by Jesus Christ, the God-man, coming to this earth to display grace and truth. So we say, oh, come, let us adore him. And that's where this song leads us, and that's where these scriptures lead us to that application Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. 
As we mentioned, the theme of the second week of Advent is, is love. And rightly, we've seen and we've sung about and we've read about the display of God's love in the coming of Christ. But it is only right and fitting to turn the coin around then and consider our love of him. What does it mean to adore him? Well, adoration can mean deep love and respect, and it does, but its greater meaning is is worship. That is what we owe to Christ the Lord, this wonderful Savior. It is this adoration which is more than just respect or admiration. It, It includes those things, but it is worship. I wanted to go to Psalm 73. Uh, to see this point made, because this is no new idea. Psalm 73, beginning in verse number 25, we read this. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The kind of adoration that that Christ's coming calls for is that kind of adoration. Who do I have except you, Lord? And there's nothing on earth I desire. Not like you. Can we say that? With this psalmist, Asaph, as he wrote those words, Can we say, can we proclaim that kind of adoration? Now, we all understand that there are are different levels of love and appreciation and and longing. Certainly, we love our family. We love our friends. We we appreciate the physical things of earth, the, the blessings of life. But consider that apart from the Lord, we have none of those things. None of it. Apart from the Lord, we wouldn't even exist. As we saw in John 1, Jesus is the word. He's he's the center, the, the source, the creator and sustainer of everything. So where does he fall in all of our levels of, of love and adoration? When we consider all the, the, the grandness, the, the beauty of earth, all the joys of of life and loving and and existing in such a place, the the sweetness of relationships and laughter, the brilliance of a sunrise or, or the calming effect of a sunset, the glistening spark of of light on a on a on a glassy lake, the song of a, a cardinal that makes us look for that that bright red plumage, the swishing of water in the woods that makes us turn our head and look for that brook or that that creek. The warmness of the sun that, that hits us on a cold day or the cool breeze that we welcome when we're out working in the heat of the day. When we think of all these blessings, we must be careful not to simply place Jesus among those things as if we're to say, I'm thankful for my family. I'm thankful for this dinner. And I think I'm thankful for Jesus too. Is it possible that sometimes we only see him as as one of those? 
instead of overall? Consider Paul's words in Colossians 1. He really says the same thing that John did in in John 1. He just expounds a little bit. Talking about Jesus, he says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Do you see those those key themes? All things created by him and for him. He is before all things. In him all things hold together. In everything he is preeminent. Those are not just ways to think about Jesus. They are truths that tell us exactly where he fits in this big puzzle of life. He isn't a a piece of the puzzle. He's not even the box that the puzzle comes in. He's the completion of the puzzle. And he's the creator of the puzzle. And he's the glue that holds the puzzle together. Yet somehow, miraculously, the puzzle maker put himself inside the puzzle in order to put it back together. He's before all things, above all things preeminent in all things. This is adoration, to see Jesus in his rightful place. We consider Jesus at Advent, again, as as a little baby in a manger, and it's a natural thing to sort of adore a little baby. But I think there's a sense that we can adore Christ without actually adoring him. Our new little baby, Todd, is a joy and a treasure. He's, he's 12 days old now, and uh, we love him already. Many people love him already. And uh, in one sense of the word, truly, I, I adore that little baby boy. Now think of this. Uh, consider that I, I can take Todd and put him in his stroller and stroll him through Hannaford, a grocery store, and, and while I'm stopped looking at the, you know, the bread or cuts of meat or something, A nice lady might come up and see him and say, oh, what a lovely little baby. He's so cute. I simply adore him. Now, does that lady love and adore Todd in the same way that I do as his father? There's no way she can. She doesn't know him. He's nothing to her except a joyful little happenstance on her grocery shopping trip. But I adore him. In the way that tomorrow morning, I'm going to wake up and and go to work in order to pay for his diapers. Lizzie is going to wake up two or three times in the middle of the night to feed him. We adore him and that we're going to do everything in our power to keep a safe and a loving home, to, to raise him and teach him and train him. I adore him in such a way that my life is different now, that he is part of it just as with our other two children. You see, there's a way that we can adore Christ like a bypasser adores a little baby, a nod, a wink, a a smile. There's a way that we can adore Christ from a distance in which we can say, well, isn't it so nice to think of what Jesus did? 
There's a way that we can even adore him in our minds theologically and say, these truths are wonderful to ponder. That gives me great joy. But then there is true adoration, which is worship, falling down, bowing down, because something has been done in us and must come from us now. There is a true adoration of Christ, which changes us. A true adoration, which says, because Jesus is my Savior, my life will reflect that. And it's no wonder that when asked what the greatest commandment was, Jesus taught us to love the Lord your God with everything and to love your neighbor. Because there's something about a genuine adoration of God from a changed heart that drives us to do more than just think about him. It changes us. I think that's why Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. If you love me, you'll you'll keep my commandments. You'll be different. Now, I'm going to give you a helper because you can't do it by yourself. But there is still going to be a real genuine reflection of a real love for me in the way that your life plays out. And the questions for us today become a couple. One, do you have this adoration for Christ? Like those magi, have you fallen down and bowed down? Something has changed in you because of his work. I hope so. And then, if that's true, the question becomes, rather than adoring him as as part of life, as one of the many things that we love, how do we adore Christ in every facet of life? How do we adore him in all things? As a husband, how do I adore my wife, yet adore Christ in that? As a dad, how, how do I raise my children and adore Christ while doing so? As a pastor, how do I adore Christ as I study and pray and shepherd and visit? As a worker, how do I adore Christ as I swing a hammer? We adore Christ in all things by letting all things bow down before him. Our life as worship, our living as as an offering, as a sacrifice that gives glory where glory is due. We would close with Romans 12, verse number one, which says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do you adore Christ? Can you say with with Asaph, whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth I desire beside you? Oh, come, let us adore him. 
Christ the Lord.